Ben Cleary earned his BA from VCU and his MA in English from the University of Virginia. From 2003 to 2016, he taught in Virginia's juvenile, system, uh, juvenile justice system, mostly at the Beaumont Juvenile Justice Center. Ben has also worked as a park ranger, a freelance editor, and a writer in residence in schools across Virginia. And his writings have appeared in NPR's All Things Considered and in the New York Times. His new book, published just last year, which is the subject of today's talk, is Searching for Stonewall Jackson, A Quest for Legacy in a Divided America, which historian James McPherson has called a rewarding reading experience. That's quite an endorsement. Please welcome Ben Cleary. All right, uh, just a trigger warning. Uh, at some point in the lecture, I say something that's very mildly critical about b the Dr. Robertson. So <laughs> please, uh, no torches and pitchforks. It's, uh, <laughs> um, early in the last decade, I wrote some articles for the New York Times Disunion, a series that commemorated the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. Several of the pieces were about Stonewall Jackson. A New York editor, Sean Desmond, wrote and asked me to do a book on Jackson. It was a dream opportunity for someone who had been fascinated with the war and with Jackson for more than three decades. When I started, interest in Confederate military history was viewed as quaint, a pastime pursued by elderly ancestor worshipers and those slight slightly demented people who dress up in wool uniforms to play war in the summer heat. Then there was Charleston, then Charlottesville. The Confederacy became anathema, a pawn in the culture wars. The idea that historical personalities should be considered in the context of their own time was not to be considered. For months, according to my late wife, my writing became joyless and defensive. It's a mark of the strength of the uh, person I was writing about that I was able to pull out of my reactive funk and deliver a decent book. In the end, I was left with the conviction that people from the past deserve understanding rather than condemnation. If I had approached Jackson as a one-dimensional uh, uh, one symbol rather than a multifaceted human being, I would never have gotten to better know one of the most fascinating people in American history. My book took longer to write than it did to fight the war. <laughs> During those years, I found Jackson to be a gift that keeps on giving. I never exhausted him as a topic. He just became more interesting. And after I finished, mysteries remain. With publication receding in the rearview mirror, I can definitely say that I'm still searching for Stonewall Jackson. Um, Here's a list, a short list of the things that still uh, intrigue and I'm still pondering even though I spent uh, so much time with him and researching and writing and thinking and meditating on him. Um, with some of them I'm not sure the answers are possible. 
lack of documentation, the passage of time, and Jackson's own secretiveness will all contribute to the fact that they will remain unresolved, providing uh, Jackson enthusiasts with rich material to puzzle and ponder for years to come. First and foremost, why wasn't Jackson afraid of death? As a rule, Civil War generals led from the front, Historian James McPherson in his monumental book, Battle Cry of Freedom, uh, said that uh, the chances of generals being killed in battle was 50% higher than that of privates. As with almost everything else, Jackson took this to the extreme. To the horror of his subordinates, he was almost always at the hottest part of the battle. Antietam was the bloodiest day in American history. Jackson presided over the morning's fighting the bloodiest part of that bloody day. The cornfield was at the uh, heart of that battle. This is the Texas Monument uh, at the edge of the present-day cornfield. They suffered a shocking 82.3% casualties. The greatest loss suffered by any infantry regiment north or south during the war, according to the monument. If you haven't been to Antietam, this is a spot you should seek out and just pause for a moment of meditation. It, it always uh, makes you stop and wonder. Uh, this is the artist rendition of the Texas Brigade and the, in the uh, conflict. According to one battle history, it was later estimated that the opposing lines surged back and forth across the cornfield no fewer than 15 times in the course of this awful day. But after things quieted down in his sector, Jackson was still spoiling for a fight. That afternoon, he and Jeb Stewart reconnoitered his left flank. A battery was harassing some North Carolina troops. Con contemplating the offensive, Jackson had a young man shimmy up a tree to see how many soldiers were opposing them. How many troops are over there, he said. Oceans of them, said the soldier. Count the flags, sir. Jackson really didn't like hyperbole. <laughs> Each flag signified a regiment. The soldier, despite sniper fire, counted. Jackson repeated each number. When he got to 39, Stonewall had to admit that that would be futile. That will do, he said. Come down, sir. In spite of the savagery of the fighting and the numbers engaged, Jackson told his brother-in-law, D.H. Hill, that he never felt safer in battle than at Antietam. He felt that God would protect him and that no harm would befall him, excuse me, reported Hill. That security, he said, extended to him throughout the day. A fascinating aside, sometimes Jackson's soldiers believed not only that the general was protected, but that those around him were as well. At the Battle of Fredericksburg, a soldier named William Williamson witnessed Jackson praying and decided that just being in the vicinity would bring him a blessing. I saw him raise his hand, he wrote, and the expression on his face and the gesture so impressed me that I rode on behind him saying to myself, I will get the benefit of that prayer. <laughs> talk, talk about an aura. <laughs> so how did Jackson get to that point of such supreme coolness in battle? You may say that he was a staunch Presbyterian who believed firmly in the doctrine of predestination. It was an article of faith that he wouldn't die before his time. That's definitely true, but I think there's real danger in thinking that once you've said that, you've, you've answered it. 
That's only the first step in understanding. When Jackson fought in the Mexican War, he behaved essentially the same as at Antietam. He kept fighting after a cannonball passed between his legs at the Battle of Chapultepec. At that point, he was thinking of becoming a Roman Catholic, not a Presbyterian. And he was talking religion with the Bishop of Mexico. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that? Um, and last, uh, later, when he was teaching at VMI and contemplating his conversion to Presbyterianism, predestination was a real sticking point for him. According to D.H. Hill, his repugnance to the doctrine was long and determined. So the question lingers, how was he so brave? And I need to interject here that one of the reasons I'm in, uh, so attracted to Jackson is that I'm his opposite in so many ways. He was a military man who reveled in giving and obeying orders, and I've spent most of my life trying to figure out how to keep people from telling me what to do. <laughs> and I'm, I'm desperately afraid to die. Last June, my Prius got T-boned when I was making a left off Patterson Avenue, and I sometimes get a little shiver when I put on my blinker, even now. Another difference with Jackson, my religious faith is somewhat haphazard. I'm not as wishy-washy as those who proclaim themselves to be spiritual rather than religious, but not even in my most devout moments can I approach Jackson. He lived in a far more religious age than ours, and he was far more religious than practically anyone else in that pious time. He prayed constantly, saying that he never raised a glass of water to his lips without giving thanks for the water of life. He sometimes prayed aloud when walking through the woods. He told a minister that he was glad when he found that scripture said, you don't have to close your eyes when praying, because he, he didn't run, run into stumps and trees that way. <laughs> Some say they could gauge the severity of a coming battle by how long the general spent on his knees before the engagement. Hush, Jim Lewis, his servant would say, the general's praying and soldiers around him would fall silent. Jackson would either read nor write personal correspondence on Sunday, nor would he use the mails if his letter would be in transit on the Lord's Day. At one point, he direly predicted that the Confederacy was in for it because it had instituted Sunday deliverance of the mails. Bravery and piety are only two aspects of Jackson's fascinating psychology. He was a world-class eccentric and a true Southern character. He subsisted for long periods on stale bread and water and refused to eat pepper because he thought it made his right leg weak. <laughs> Believing that one side of his body was heavier than the other, he would astonish his fellow West Point cadets by thrusting one arm into the air to balance things out. As the, year went, went, as the years went by, this habit became associated with prayer, sort of a broadcast antenna, broadcasting his petitions toward the deity. And this habit backfired on him during uh, First Manassas. Uh, he thrust his hand into the air and caught a bullet and broke his finger. His secretiveness was legendary. He was so private that several members of his own staff didn't know that his daughter had been born until a month after she had, uh, had come into the world. He kept both of his marriage engagements secret. Neighbors didn't know about his weddings until he left on the honeymoons. Militarily, he was even less forthcoming. And this is part of one of his most famous quotes here. This is part of one of his most famous quotes. Uh, 
Help. Okay. Graham? Wait a minute, here we go. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, always mystify, mislead, and surprise the enemy. Uh, Jackson has a lot of competition for being the bravest uh, commander in the Civil War. He has almost none for being the most secretive. If his soldiers were marching, he wouldn't tell them where they were going. He would post a guide at each crossroads and then tell them which road to take. And they'd have to march until they came to the next crossroads and the next guide. Uh, when Lee and Jackson were thinking of extending the Valley Campaign in 1862, um, uh, they sent reinforcements to Jackson under General Chase Whiting. After his troops arrived in the valley, Whiting rode 15 additional miles to confer with Jackson. He returned furious, complaining because Jackson had told him nothing of his plans. Said General Whiting, he didn't say one word about his plans. I don't think he has any more sense than my horse. <laughs> that night, Lee summoned Jackson to Richmond to help in the fight against McClellan. Jackson ordered Whiting to return his men to Richmond via Gordonsville, but didn't tell him why. Said General Whiting, didn't I tell you he was a fool, and doesn't this prove it? Why, I just came through Gordonsville day before yesterday. Um, the maxim advocates mystifying and surprising the enemy. He also surprised his own men, not to mention present-day biographers. Uh, general Richard Ewell once confided to a fellow general that he admired Jackson's genius, but was certain of his lunacy and never saw one of Jackson's couriers approach without expecting an order to assault the North Pole. <laughs> Jackson's psychology is another baffling enigma. A good ca case could be made that he had Asperger's. PTSD is another strong contender. And if you look at this, uh, he's certainly got a lot to be stressed about, a lot of trauma to be post-traumatically stressed about. Um, his father and sister died of typhoid fever when he was two, his mother following a difficult childbirth when he was six. The orphan Jackson went to live with his uncle Cummings, who raised his nephew with affection and benign neglect. Cummings' efficiency uh, in business shaded into shady dealings. In 1844, while on trial for counterfeiting, he leapt through a courthouse window, went into hiding, and ultimately fed, uh, fled to the California goldfields where he died. Jackson lost his brother Warren when he was 17. Um, he had sister Laura, he was very close to. They were two orphans drawn together, and uh, they became estranged by the war, and uh, she no they never spoke after the onset of hostilities, and when he died, she expressed mixed feelings about his death. Jackson's first child was stillborn. His first wife died after the birth. When he married again, the couple's first child, a daughter, lived less than a month. Historian Douglas Freeman wrote that Jackson took an almost pathetic joy in family life. It's easy to imagine why. Almost every time he got a family, it was snatched away from him. Add to that the not inconsiderable uh, humiliation of a decade spent teaching at v Virginia Military Institute as Tom Fool Jackson, the butt of classroom jokes and the object of more than a few students' disrespect. His classroom performance was so poor that some alumni tried to have him removed in 1856. 
His biographer, James I. Robertson, once asserted from this podium that Jackson was probably the worst teacher in the history of the Institute. Was all this hardship enough to bring on the dietary peculiarities, the personal oddities, and the host of maladies, real and imagined, which he was afflicted? And do the causes correspond to the results? The keeping of personal secrets, for example, does that have anything to do with an unconscious dread of letting anything out because uh, he'd lost so much? This is Jackson's uh, favorite Bible verse. And we know that all things work together for good. Um, I'm always amazed that he believed that. After all that had happened to him, how could he wrench his mind around into thinking that everything was positive? The death of so many loved ones, the wartime horrors he witnessed both here and in Mexico. Fighting the Yankees was easy in comparison to believing that everything was good in some ultimate sense. Jackson's frequent lack of self-knowledge was another puzzle. One evening in 1852, he went to see his friend D.H. Hill. The two usually discussed religion, but on this night, Jackson couldn't stop talking about Eleanor Junkin. I don't know what has changed, he said. I used to think her plain, but her face now seems to me all sweetness. Hill laughed. You're in love. That's what's the matter. <laughs> Jackson gave the feeling serious thought. He concluded that he indeed must be in love and started courting Ellie. And here I feel James Robertson's presence acutely, since he talks so well about Jackson from this very spot. Yet I remember him once taking an audience member sternly to task for asking what might have happened had Jackson been alive to fight at Gettysburg. It's not the historian's job, Robertson told the hapless fellow, to speculate on what might have been. Well, yeah, if you want to take half the fun out of history. <laughs> and it's fascinating here to speculate what might have happened after Ellie died tragically in childbirth. Jackson, who remained in the Junkin household, uh, fell in love with her sister, Maggie. And she fell in love with him. But Presbyterian canon law forbade them getting married. The pious deacon and the minister's daughter would not disobey the laws of the church. Their relationship, and his relationship with both of his wives, was, to say the least, very interesting. Before Jackson started courting Ellie, she and Maggie were extremely close. Early on, Maggie actually persuaded Ellie to break off the engagement. She simply didn't want to lose her best friend. Jackson was disconsolate and talked about becoming a missionary and dying in some foreign land. <coughs> Ellie finally defied her sister and accepted Jackson's proposal, and Maggie accompanied them on their honeymoon. Later, Jackson rec recreated much the same honeymoon trip to Niagara Falls and points north with his second wife, Anna, though, of course, this time without Maggie. <laughs> Anna, the second wife, was certainly a very formidable woman, but Maggie, later Margaret Junkin Preston, became an influential writer with a national reputation during a time when a literary career for women was rare and hard to come by. She was as unique in her sphere as Jackson was in his, and it's fascinating to speculate, my apologies to Dr. Robertson, how history could have been different had those two powerful people united. Before we leave the topic, I need to point out that both of Jackson's wives were short, spirited, dark-haired daughters of college presidents. 
In addition to taking much the same honeymoon trip, I have also heard, though not been able to verify, that he insisted on staying in the same rooms. Militarily, Jackson's lack of self-awareness was disastrous on several occasions, most notably the 1862 Seven Days Battles around Richmond. Jackson had driven himself relentlessly during the Valley Campaign, which immediately preceded the Seven Days. Uh, for two and a half months, from late March to early June, he was constantly marching and fighting. He came to Richmond without giving himself a chance to recover. On his way down from the valley to meet with Lee, he rode over 90 miles in 48 hours. He didn't sleep during the ride and didn't make up for it later, filling his nights with busy work instead of resting. He slept so little that it clouded his judgment. He actually became so tired that he didn't know he was tired. He wasn't where he was supposed to be when he was supposed to be there, and he constantly underperformed during the battles themselves. Lethargy alternated with animation as adrenaline and devotion to duty overcame fatigue. The Reverend Dabney, who wrote the first Big Jackson biography, and there seemed to be no short books on Stonewall Jackson, recalled <laughs> the general at Gaines Mill in near biblical terms, saying that his fiery spirit broke from his customary restraints and bore him away with a tempest of passion by which his face and person were literally transfigured. He fought like a man possessed. Afterwards, he nodded off. At White Oak Swamp, he fell asleep with a biscuit between his teeth. Lee, in contrast, took care of himself. He's recorded as being in bed most nights by 11. Historians traditionally conclude their narrative of Jackson at the Seven Days by saying that Stonewall was sleep-deprived. Well, yeah, but there's a question behind the question. Why did he let himself get that way? His most famous maxim, which is actually chiseled in stone in Jackson Barracks at VMI is, you can be whatever you resolve to be. It's simply not true if you resolve to do something that's humanly impossible. Why didn't Jackson know his limits? It's extraordinary to think that even though Jackson didn't bring his A-game to Richmond, his reputation was so formidable that it caused McClellan, the invading federal general, to pull in his horns and retreat. Jackson and Lee psyched out their opponent. Jackson's feelings about slavery were an additional and contradictory puzzle. Jackson founded an African-American Sunday school where he personally taught for more than five years. He defied Virginia law by teaching slaves and free blacks to read so they could study the Bible. The school was extremely successful. It continued many years after his death and eventually metamorphosized into a church which is still in use today. Reading about the school, you have to think that a lot of Jackson's heart had to do with it, was bound up in it. After First Manassas, instead of writing about the battle, he sent his pastor in Lexington a check for the Sunday school. Yet he went to war, at least in part, to defend slavery. How did he really feel? He lived in the North as well as the South before the war and had to have been cognizant of the debates that were raging back and forth. Biographer Robertson avers that Jackson probably opposed slavery and devotes only two pages in his almost thousand-page tome to the subject. Uh, the other biography recent, recently came out, Rebel Yell, by Sam Gwynn, uh, is even less forthcoming. The truth is, we just don't know how Jackson really thought. So perhaps this is a topic for a nonfiction novel rather than a biography. Before moving on to sites and battlefields, one more conundrum. I think Jackson meditated. 
His wife, Anna, says he turned his chair to the wall for an hour each night so he could study mentally without a book. She believed he was reviewing his lessons for the next day's teaching. I'm not so sure. General Richard Taylor wrote about being with Jackson during the Valley Campaign. His is one of, one of the only... His is only one of the many accounts that mention the same type of silence and introspection. Late in the night, Jackson came out of the darkness and seated himself by my campfire, writes Taylor. He mentioned that he would move with him in the morning, then relapsed into silence. For hours, he sat motionless, with eyes fixed on the fire. I took up the idea that he was inwardly praying, and he remained so throughout the night. Inwardly praying or studying mentally without a book? It sounds a lot like meditation to me. I don't know anything about, if you know anything about the practice, you know how much it contributes to a sense of inner peace and self-awareness. When people call uh, today mindfulness, I like to think that sort of mental clarity is what Jackson was getting from the activity, except during those times like the seven days when he, won when he wasn't. Uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, has the best all-time quote about battlefields. In great deeds, he writes, in great deeds something abides, on great fields something stays. Forms change and pass, bodies disappear, but spirits linger to consecrate ground for the vision place of souls. Generations that know us not and that we know not of, heart drawn to see where and by whom great things were suffered and done for them, shall come to this deathless field to ponder and dream. And lo, a shadow of a mighty presence shall wrap them in its bosom and the power of the vision pass into their souls. There are some places associated with Jackson that actually physically embody uh, Chamberlain's words. And in my book, I go back and forth you know, from actually going to the battlefields and talking about what it's like to visit them today and then uh, go back to narrative history about what actually happened. Melvin Hill is the one I know best. It's definitely a great field where something stays, consecrated ground and a vision place of souls. Sometimes it's so evocative that I almost get physically ill. It's a few miles southeast of Richmond the last of the seven days battles. The, the National Park Service has preserved enough of it so that a perfect blank canvas, so it is a perfect blank canvas uh, to imagine what happened there in the afternoon of July 1st, 1862. How many, how many of y'all have been there? Well, you ought to go. It's not that far. It's really, it's really evocative. You can usually you know, snap a selfie with your, with your uh, cannon before, you, um, before another car goes by, and you'll probably, I'm certainly be the only person there. Um, basically, the Confederates charged up Malvern Hill against massed Union cannon interspersed with infantry and got cut to pieces. The gentle slope turned the battle into a shooting gallery for Federal artillery. Union gunners rejoiced at their opportunity um, and delivered cannon fire of unprecedented violence on the Confederate infantry. 35,000 Confederates took part in the attack. Roughly 5,600 would be killed, wounded, or captured. Remarkably, the Confederates managed to inflict some 3,000 casualties on the Federals. There was incredible tragedy and incredible bravery on both sides. It's an evocative, melancholy place. When you visit, you don't need an active imagination to mentally time travel back to 1862, to uh, mentally visualize uh, the Union and Confederate soldiers there. 
It's an outdoor classroom that preservationists are fond of talking about when they're promoting the educational aspects of their endeavors. And there are all sorts of tactical points to ponder, even if you're not, even if, even if you're not a military historian. This was the type of assault, for example, that had worked for Lee just a few days before at Gaines Mill. Why didn't it work here? Lee looked like a hero at that battle, inept, at pet, inept and petty at this. Yet in spite of being defeated, he triumphed overall. And George McClellan, who was in charge of the Union forces, won the day decisively, yet he retreated. Why? Thus Malvern Hill. There are other places with Jackson associations that are much more complicated. Once you move beyond the first tier of battlefields, the exquisitely preserved and wonderfully inter interpreted sites, you're adrift in modern America. It's no longer like a visit to a church or the lecture hall. Uh, for the practical historian, historian, it's sometimes simply jarring. For example, if you're researching the Union General John Reynolds, I believe that his headquarters during the Battle of Gaines's Mill was in the meat department of the Walmart of 360. <laughs> Closer to our topic, if you want to follow in the footsteps of Jackson on his last great flank march at Chancellorsville, part of your route follows a former country road that has ch changed little since the 1860s. You can walk where he rode on Little Sorrel, and uh, you can almost hear him saying, close up, men, close up, and hear the clank of canteens and the marching feet, and only be distracted by a few deer. You usually see more deer than automobiles. Then you come to the modern-day Orange Plank Road. If you follow Jackson here, you can replicate the experience of battle by pretending that dodging cars is like dodging bullets. <laughs> Seriously, there's no way you can meditate on the past. You're taking your life in your hands at every moment. It's often been said that you can't preserve everything, but it's certainly true. But you have to be enough a way that we can save enough so that we can go back to these old stories that mean so much and whose meaning only becomes richer as time moves along. And there has to be a, a way of writing history that takes into account the experiences of modern-day visitors like you and me uh, who go to these places. And you have this sublime experience of going, say, up to uh, Jackson Shrine off I-95 and imagining the ticking of the clock on the mantle of the general dying in bed in that very room. And then you get in your car and you listen to Taylor Swift or <laughs> drive to cookout or what have you. You know, it's it's. Uh, it's kind of jarring, but you know, you've had both experiences a part of uh, your research into the past, your pilgrimage into the past. Uh, and there's so much in the past that informs and enriches, and it should never be communicated in dry, forgettable prose. This is up in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, Meme's Bottom Covered Bridge. And this is, uh, when you go there, there's all kinds of other stuff that uh, it's, it's not like Malvern Hill where there's this textbook battlefield. This is, there's a whole lot more here going on. First thing is, is that uh, you, you're the marker for Jackson's, uh, of the fact that Jackson camped there in 1862 in April uh, is across from a tire store. And you, you automatically think, you know, uh, can you imagine the general going in and does he want a Bridgestone or Michelin or what? <laughs> so it's, uh, um, and at the bottom of the hill where the bridge is, you can easily imagine Confederate soldiers standing sentinel at this picturesque bridge, except that it wasn't built until two years after the war. <laughs> still, still, it's genuinely beautiful, one of only seven such bridges in Virginia. 
When I visited the site for my research, I first met a man who was taking care of a feral cat. And says, always, you, you meet people on the battlefields, and they're not, you know, giving you erudite lectures about, uh, you know, what happened in the past. They're just, you know, modern-day people going about their modern-day business. Um, he told me about deer coming out of the woods at sunset and how his huge dog had chased a bear nearby. He made me feel peaceful. As I explored the area, I thought back on one of the uh, stories from the Civil War about Jackson's early war cavalryman, Tur Turner Ashby. Turner Ashby was the Black Knight of the Confederacy. Uh, men flocked to his banner. He was brave to a fault. Uh, wrote Douglas Freeman, those admirers who always remembered how he looked never recalled anything he said. He spoke best with his sword. According to one laudatory, laudatory biographer, dressed in Confederate gray with gilt lace on his sleeves and collars, wearing high top boots with spurs and broad brimmed black felt hat with a long black feather streaming behind, his appearance was striking and attractive. His hair and beard were as black as a raven's wing. His eyes were soft and mahogany brown. A long sweeping mustache concealed his mouth and a heavy and long beard completely covered his breast. His complexion was dark in keeping with his other colorings. Altogether, he re resembled the picture I've seen of the early Crusaders, a type unusual among the many men of the army, a type so distinctive that, once observed, cannot soon be forgotten. And what happened at uh, Rude's Hill or Meme's Bottom was, um, uh, was the following. Um, the Confederate defenders were watching what they assumed was a Federal attack on their encampment. Uh, they saw the Union gal cavalry galloping toward them, and they were struck by the horsemanship of the leader, who was mounted on a milk-white steed. Distant let, let, uh, it was beautiful, uh, Kid Douglas wrote of the tableau, distant sun enchantment to it, as it did on other occasions in my war experience. Let me get a sip of water just a second. As the group came closer, the rebels realized that the man in the lead was Turner Ashby, his horse, the fabled Tom Telegraph, and far from leading, he was being chased. A covered bridge, not the one I've been talking about, another one, spanned the stream in front of the Confederates. Pulling ahead of his pursuers, Ashby tried to burn the bridge. Time was too short. The Federals were upon him. One shot from a horseman cut into his boot, grazed his leg, and buried himself in the side of his charger. The next moment, the avenging sword of the master came down upon the enemy and rolled him in the dust. So, in spite of his wound, Tom Telegraph bore Ashby to safety. Horse and rider came sweeping over the plain. Behind Confederate lines, the horse sank to the ground. His wound was mortal. Gazing into his eyes, Ashby stroked his mane and bade farewell. Concludes Douglas, thus the most splendid horseman I ever knew lost the most beautiful war horse I ever saw. It's a wonderful story, like something out of the Boys King Arthur uh, that I read when I was young. But as I wandered on the riverbank of the picturesque Shenandoah, I kept trying to remember something else a contrasting story that was as much a part of the history of the place as Jackson, Ashby, and Tom Telegraph. I was all to try to determine what it was that evening when I went back to where I was staying at the Motel 6, which the hotel was very economical. 
and yet the social services was using it to stash people with substance abuse problems. Painfully thin, they sat hunched in front of their rooms, smoking, smoking, smoking. And that was it, methamphetamine. This is one of the other stories, that they're just, you know, the layers of stories at these places. Um, a brutal murder, MS-13. A session with Google brought back the whole story. Made in trailer park labs and the backs of barns, crank is the drug of choice in rural America. Uh, it's, um, in the Shenandoah Valley, crank has been moved by a biker gang called the Warlocks, but MS-13 is simply out hustling the competition with its immigrant work ethic. On July 17, 2003, a fisherman and his son found a body near the Memes Bottom Covered Bridge. It was so badly decomposed it was hard to tell whether it was male or female. Forensic uh, investigation revealed it was a young pregnant Hispanic woman. She had suffered multiple stab wounds and her throat had been slashed so violently that her head was almost completely severed. It turned out to be 17-year-old Brenda Paz, Smiley, a, a gang member and informant who was set to testify against the MS-13 members in six states. She had been in the witness protection program in Minnesota and then got lonely for her old gang associates and came back to Virginia. Shortly after she was returned, a gang member looked at her diary and saw that she had been meeting with policemen, so she was green-lighted for execution. Three gang members invited her to go fishing. One borrowed an SUV and they drove to Memes Bottom, probably parking the same little pullout I'd parked at. Because she was pregnant, they helped her over the rocks and to a secluded spot on the bank. Then they put a rope around her neck from behind and started stabbing her. Before she died, they told her she was being killed because she was a rat, snitch. They tried to cut her head off, but her, their knives were too dull. When I returned to Roos uh, Hill the next day, I reread all the markers, then drove down to Memes Bottom. Stripe wasn't around, but uh, there was a mom and her three kids splashing around in the river. So it's just, I'm just trying to talk about all the modern stuff. You try to go back to the past, but there's so much modern stuff too that's, that's there as well. The cheerful flo voices floated up to me as I walked through the bridge and I studied the amazing carpentry of the arch timbers, meditating on Brenda Paz, and played with the disturbing idea that the something Chamberlain said lingered on great battlefields was a template created by the violence, a pattern for more brutal aggression down the years, like the Furman tra trail that ants follow to a food source. No, I decided, violence is an integral part of the human condition and could happen anywhere. Beckett murdered in the consecrated cathedral, the Civil War soldier shot in a nondescript patch of woods. It is who we are. A car came through the bridge. I hugged the wall. I could be killed in this beautiful bridge, I thought, and wound up a lonely shade wandering the riverbank with Brenda Paz and whatever Confederate soldiers had been shot nearby. It was an easy place to die. I walked out of the structure as quickly as I could. So, Jackson, Ashby, a meeting with an odd person on the battlefield, Motel 6, MS-13, thoughts of my own mortality against the soundscape of a young mother frolicking in the river with her preschoolers, a variety of rich and varied material at a historic site. I think that to stay relevant, historic writing needs to partake more of the way present-day people actually experience history when they make their pilgrimage to the past. One final thought. Jackson led a humble, quiet life in Lexington around 1860. 
If the war hadn't intervened, he would have lived out his life praying, eating stale bread, and driving generations of VMI cadets crazy. <laughs> Imagine Albert Einstein teaching high school physics and coaching JV soccer. Yet suddenly, with the onset of hostilities, Jackson's fame ascended like a rocket. He was catapulted into the world stage, doing what he did best and doing it better than anyone else. For a while, he was arguably the most famous American general, actually more famous than Lee, who was only beginning his, his ascent to stardom. So what was it like for him those, during those quiet years back in Lexington? Did he know how unique he was? What he was capable of? Richard Taylor, who I quoted earlier writing about Jackson, meditating by the campfire, had another illuminating moment during a conversation with the general. Observing him closely, he wrote, I caught a glimpse of the man's inner nature. It was but a glimpse. The curtain closed and he was absorbed in prayer. Yet in that moment I saw an ambition boundless as Cromwell's and as merciless. I think Taylor got it wrong. I don't think he glimpsed was ambition. I think what he glimpsed was raw power. And talk, he talks about the curtain parting and there was so much to see, but so much still remains hidden even from those who, like me, spend years studying and meditating on the general. So thank you very much. We have a few minutes uh, for question and answer. If you have a question, raise your hand. We have some portable mics here that we'll get over to you so you can Get a response from Ben. Questions? Uh, what I was interested in that you didn't frame was how did he become the general? I mean, why did they appoint him to that position at the beginning of the Civil War? It was, it was funny because he kind of won the day at, at uh, first bull run, but he, uh, people didn't talk about it. And it just kind of was like this, uh, this avalanche rolling downhill. Gradually he got better and got better and got better. Everything he did and people's uh, reputation, you know, and then, then he, uh, uh, he was very aggressive and Jefferson Davis was uh, more conciliatory. Jefferson Davis was hoping for uh, European recognition of the Confederacy and Jackson wanted, well, Jackson, he wanted to attack. <laughs> he wanted to, to to uh, you know, to, to go forward 110 percent, so they put him out in the valley. And one reason they put him out there is because he was this guy that uh, was sort of embarrassing the administration by uh, by not towing the party line. So they sent him out to the valley, and then all of a sudden he started doing incredible things out in the valley. You know, he he defeated uh, three Union armies that outnumbered him five to one. I forget exactly what the figures were, and so so. Uh, and then, um, and by the time he came to Richmond, right after the Valley Campaign, uh, he, uh, he, he wasn't himself. He, he was so fatigued, but uh, his reputation by that point was so uh, uh, formidable that uh, just his reputation was enough to turn the tide. Uh, I was wondering, okay, when the Union Army first invaded Virginia, a reporter came from the Richmond Examiner and asked Stonewall what his plans were to run the Federals back up north. And his answer was, you have to kind of tie this into his religion, his answer was kill 
them all. And I was just wondering if you feel like he had a killer instinct possibly built in. Well, he had a, a killer instinct, but also uh, just before they, um, oh, I, I forget exactly uh, where, the, uh, where they raided the, uh, the Confederate uh, depot, I mean the, the Union depot up uh, at center, I forgot where it was now. Thank you. Uh, and uh, the, uh, these uh, uh, Union soldiers came out, and they, uh, they were incredibly outnumbered, but they didn't realize it. And they just started toward Jackson, and Jackson's soldiers all had their muskets cocked, and they were ready to fire. And Jackson, instead of just saying, you know, the, um, kill them all, he said uh, he rode out in front of them with a, a waving a white handkerchief, saying, y'all, you guys, are, you know, you can't, you can't do this. And then somebody shot at him, and he rode back and said, all right, go ahead. <laughs> so, so he had the killer instinct, but he also had uh, other flashes of, of so much else. And that's what makes him such a, a multi-layered, multi complex, and interesting personality. Come on, that can't be all. <laughs> I find it very interesting that you're talking about the urbanized battlefields that we have here in Virginia. What about places that are very intimate as far as Stonewall is concerned? Port Republic or uh, South Mountain? Those are almost pristine to the way they were when Jackson was there. And the, the sense of the man, the sense of the time, the everything is there if you're willing to look for it. Well, I often think about it. The re, one of the big reasons that I'm uh, uh, so interested in Jackson was because he marched down the road in front of my house. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I go up there and, uh, you know, the road is empty and, uh, you know, you, you can almost see uh, the, the column. They said it took a whole day for the column to pass, 2,800 men. And sometimes you can almost uh, travel back in time to see that. And then other times, uh, you know, there's somebody uh, driving past smoking a Marlboro light, and uh, you, know, <laughs> you just say, oh, well, here's, here we are in modern life, even though uh, Jackson was here. So it's, uh, it's, it's a contrast. It's always a contrast. often called his generals together, uh, the ones who could make it to Richmond. Uh, and I'm interested in how he related to both the president, you've said there were a few differences there, and, uh, and the other generals. How, how did he um, stack up when the leadership were together? Well, Jackson was... Uh Jackson got insulted by Davis at their first meeting. He, he was up at uh, Manassas, and Davis just couldn't stay away from the sound of the guns, and so he went up to the battle to see what was happening, and uh, he saw Jackson. He said, go back, go back. It's, you know, but Jackson said, hey, we won. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, they, they, they got off on the wrong foot. <laughs> but, and then uh, Jackson was... I think they, they just were, were really different types of people, and they didn't warm to each other uh, until uh, much later in the conflict. So I, I don't know. The, the, that's, that's the other the 
these, this was a short list, like I said, of the things that I, um, that I was still intrigued by after I finished the book. But to the interplay between Jackson and Lee, I mean, the, the sum, it was, you know, one plus one equals three, because they, they, the synergy was so much there, and uh, their inter interaction with Davis, and their interaction with Stewart, and all these other, you know, I, I didn't get into that as much as I should have, and if I have another four years, I might do it. <laughs> hey, Ben, I have a question for you. Uh, Jackson was well known for being very difficult with some of his subordinates early in the war, such as Turner Ashby, who he had a very challenging relationship with. But, and I'm wondering, as you've done your research over Jackson during his lifetime, those last couple of years that he lived, do you see, I know he had a great relationship with Lee and with Jeb Stewart, but did you see any warming of Jackson's personality over that period of time before he died? Did he become any better about dealing with people, if he had some kind of Asperger's type of thing, he had some relationships horrible, get better. He had some horrible thing going on that sometimes he'd be at the moment of victory and then he would uh, he'd, he'd get all petty and, and awful with people. He did that with uh, Richard Garnett. You know, he, he wanted him to be court-martialed after, I think, Kernstown. And the, and the guy was, you know, was brave general, and, and Jackson, you know, just had this vendetta against him. And so that's just one of the things where, you know, if you... If you if you're a Jackson enthusiast like I am, you just kind of want to avert your eyes because it's, you know, he's he's just not acting like this this man that you've uh, that you've seen, you know, uh, act so much better so many times. So uh, and then and then there were other times, uh, like like after he uh, resigned his commission uh, for for a few moments after the Romney campaign and Davis superseded him and uh, said he had to. Uh, you know, he had to do something he didn't want to do, and then he um, he became uh, Graham. Uh, Reverend Graham said that that the scale. You know, he just this, it's again like that that last quote I did about the curtain parting, and all of a sudden he saw Jackson as Jackson really was, not as Jackson who was putting on this front. You know, they talk about Lee being the Marvel man, but he couldn't hold a candle to Jackson as far as you know keeping all that stuff inside, except when he didn't. So. You may have time for one more. I guess I'm going to ask you to speculate. Um, <laughs> but with Jackson and developing you know, the, the church school for blacks, and with Lee in his final years uh, trying to uh, preach reconciliation with the nation, do you think that um, the people nowadays should know that, should realize that uh, the, these folks were trying to do the right thing. Well, that's the point to ponder. I don't know. Jackson seemed to get more aggressive as time, as the war went on, instead of more recon reconciliatory. And Lee, um, Lee had the post-war years in which to to rethink the things that, and positions and things that he had done. So uh, we, Jackson stopped at the uh, apex of his career, and Lee went on after that. So uh, it, we just don't know. I, I like to think because of Jackson's uh, Christianity, his Christianity was stronger than his, uh, his even his uh, warlike talents. So I'm, I'm sure he probably would have come, come to something else. Yes? 
Thank you all.